HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by the Museum of Food and Drink, sparking curiosity about food with exhibits you can eat. For more information, visit mofad.org. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome to Food Without Borders, a show about food, politics, and all the ways that immigrants make our food system more delicious. I'm your host, Sari Kamen. My guest today is Manal Kahi. She's the founder of Eat Off Beat, a catering company staffed by refugee chefs. At Eat Off Beat, the chefs prepare recipes they've carried with them from their native countries, places like Syria, Nepal, Eritrea, and Iraq. The unique dishes are delivered to adventurous New Yorkers interested in trying new foods. Welcome to the show, Manal. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for being here. Of course. Um, so first, we'll be speaking with you a little bit about your own background and your own immigration story. I know you're from Lebanon. I am. Correct. Um, so tell us a little bit about when you came over to the United States and what the reasoning behind that was. Sure. So I'm originally from Lebanon, like you mentioned, <laughs> a couple uh, you know, miles away from from Beirut, the capital. I came to the U.S., uh, to New York specifically in 2013 to pursue a master's degree in international affairs at Columbia University here in New York. Um, And yeah, basically when I got here, I was a bit disappointed with hummus on uh, on supermarket shelves and grocery stores. You know? was, that, was that your first reaction to America? You're not like, I'm here and I don't like the hummus. <laughs> not necessarily. There were a bunch of different things. Uh, mostly, I mean, my first impression when I first got here was that it felt very familiar, probably because of all the movies we watch about New York. It didn't feel like I was in, a, in such a strange That's place. That's so surprising right? to me. Yeah, it really felt like I was somewhere, you know, I, I, it felt like I knew the place. It didn't feel like such a new uh, you know, place for me. Uh, that, did you have Did you have TV shows you'd grown up watching that had New York in Probably. Them? Did you watch I mean, like Friends Sex is the one City? of them. Oh, Friends, right? Exactly, Sex and the City. Yeah, Friends. So many shows. You, were... Yeah, not very realistic of New York, unfortunately. Exactly. But there's a bit of, <laughs> yeah. you know, there's, it, even if it's not shot in New York, there's a lot of shots that happen in New York. The yellow taxis, the yellow cars, right, all right. these things. So it kind of gives you an idea of what, what to expect, let's say. Mm-hmm. And what did you come here to study? 
uh, international affairs mm -hmm. with a focus on environment, actually, and energy. That's, that was my background before I came here. So I used to be an environmental consultant. Uh, back in Beirut, I was consulting for, uh, yeah, basically energy and environment issues. So what in your mind was, like, the, the job you were going to end up doing once you graduated? I really wanted to work on international climate policy or international environmental affairs with, you know, with multilateral organizations working on international deals, something like that. That's what I wanted to do. And that's why I came to New York, actually. I knew that was the place to be. Uh, to start the career in that, mm -hmm. but clearly now I'm I'm elsewhere. <laughs> I'm in a field that's completely different. It is. So tell us about that. It sounds like yeah, some, something about hummus kind of sidetracked you. There. Exactly. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> it's still a bit. You know, I, I like to say it's it's energy. It's still energy. It's just a different type of energy. Absolutely. Right? It's energy for the soul. Yeah. For the for for. Uh, anyway, so yeah, like I was saying, I was disappointed with hummus. I wasn't very happy <laughs> with the quality I found in, in grocery stores. It's hard to stuff. compare it. Yeah. <laughs> then compare. With with what I used to have, uh -huh. or let's say I had very high standards when yeah. I came to hummus back back home. So I started making my own. I basically really just called up my grandmother, asked her, "Hey, how do you make your your hummus?" She gave me her recipe, and everyone around me just loved it. People started raving about it. Although, like deep down, I knew it wasn't even that good, right? Not even as good as my grandmother's. Not as good as your grandmother's. Exactly, but I'm sure. It was good. Still, I mean, it, it was, was okay. A, just a not like the recipe. best. Yeah, exactly. Just not the best hummus I've, I had had. Right. But people loved it. <laughs> <laughs> and I actually mentioned that to my brother, who's now my co-founder at Eat Off Beat. His name is Wissam. And uh, so he was, I mean, we... We some suggested, hey, why don't we find a way to sell it? We should. Did find he have a, a similar experience? Was he like also nostalgic for for foods absolutely. from Lebanon and from yeah, where you're from? Absolutely. He also was of that opinion that it tasted. I mean, you buy people buy so much hummus here, it's not that good. So he, he, he people here love hummus. I know, <laughs> but I mean, having crazy. personally been to the Middle East, like it is such a different product. Like exactly. you can't really compare it. They're not the same animal exactly. at all. Exactly, it's a different thing. And yeah. I, I mean, clearly, I have to be fair. A lot of restaurants here serve really good hummus. Mm -hmm. It's not, but I just. But yeah, it's different than like the, the kind you get at the deli. Exactly, exactly. Um, so yeah, that, that's kind of where we started thinking we should bring good, authentic hummus to New Yorkers, and we started thinking of who could bring that, who could help us bring that real, authentic uh, uh, hummus. Basically, Are you like I gotta get my grandma here. More or less. That, that's kind of where she's she's a little old, clearly. <laughs> I'd love to, but that's, that's, to that wouldn't going to happen. She actually happens to be from Aleppo, from Syria. Oh, wow. Okay. Our grandmother. So it was relatively for us, and again, that was 2013, just to give you some context. I had left Lebanon in the midst of what was known as the refugee crisis back, back in Lebanon. Maybe mm -hmm. it wasn't a thing yet here in the U.S. or uh, in Europe, but for us in Lebanon, we already were kind of suffering with... Not suffering, let me rephrase, but we were already exposed to all the suffering that was happening mm -hmm. um, with mainly Syrian refugees being resettled in Lebanon. Right, but I think you're right. I don't think that was a term that had sort not of made yet. its way yet over to the States. Exactly, yeah. not yet. Uh, so, I mean, it was relatively easy for us to make the connection. Our mother, mm -hmm. grandmother, happening to be from Syria, from Aleppo, and then uh, having kind of a little guilt, let's say, about having left Lebanon, not being able to do anything about the entire mm -hmm. situation, being here in the U.S., kind of made sense. Why not have uh, Syrian refugees who are being resettled here in New York make great hummus the way they make it <laughs> for their families, yeah. <laughs> or my hummus, or yeah. just theirs, the way they make it for their families, and kind of introduce New Yorkers to it, because I was sure there was going to be 
tons of people who make even better hummus than mine. I, it was never <laughs> the intention to sell my own hummus. Right. It was more the intention to sell theirs, to find those people who make great hummus and sell it. Right. I mean, nor were you a chef or exactly. you know, pursuing a culinary career. Absolutely. Absolutely. Actually, anecdotally, uh, when we first got the idea, I had a friend who asked me to like uh, cater an event for them. Not even cater, just provide some hummus for their event. And I had to spend about an entire day making hummus. <laughs> and it wasn't fun, to be honest. It was a lot of work. By the end of the day, I was I couldn't taste hummus anymore. You <laughs> couldn't taste it. So that was part of the reasoning behind. I mean, towards I mean towards the end, we we switched. We kind of pivoted away from just hummus and thought, why not make it more global? There are so many other countries that uh, have cuisines that are underrepresented. Um, we both myself and Wissam, my brother, were very uh, adventurous. Uh, anyway, we like discovering new cuisines so we thought why not look for other recipes there must be other uh, recipes just like hummus that are way better if they're homemade uh, made with love you know based on family recipes versus bought at the stores or even you know discovered uh, hummus probably wasn't a great uh, uh, example because hummus is so common and people in new york just know it everyone knows it mm -hmm. but there are so many other recipes that we don't know for instance, I mean, hummus, everyone knows it here. Nobody knows about, maybe less people know baba ganoush, which is the uh, kind of the equivalent with um, eggplants. But there's another dish which my grandma is, is famous for, which is called mhammara in Arabic. And that's a dish which is delightful. And I don't find it here anywhere. It's made with uh, basically paprika, nuts, ground nuts, and uh, uh, different seasoning. It's a bit like hummus as as a concept, so it's also kind Good of a dip. dip. Yeah, and you usually eat it with with bread, pita bread. Uh, so we thought, that, I mean, <laughs> to cost uh, to the chase, uh, there are other recipes that are great and that we thought New Yorkers could discover too. Uh, and clearly, we kept the idea of hiring refugees, uh, people who are home cooks, not necessarily trained as professional chefs, but those people who are talented enough, just like, like I always keep my grandmother in mind because she's one of those people who everything she makes is, is amazing, right? The food she made back home is just like that's some of the best food I've ever had. And she's clearly never had any kind of professional training. When you explain it, like when you came up with your concept, it seems so obvious and like such a like it's so straightforward to connect those dots between like refugees who might need employment or mm -hmm. looking for some sort of um, right. you know, culinary work and then being able to provide New Yorkers who are sort of, you know, inherently adventurous eaters. <laughs> it's like, it's such a slam dunk. Like, it's almost amazing right. that no one was doing it. Exactly. I'm sure a lot of people had that idea, too. I'm not, I'm, I well, don't maybe no one executed ones, but it exactly, as well yeah. as you did. Yeah, it's also tough to make that jump. But I guess, yeah, clearly, uh, for us, it made sense. It was just it something just, It makes sense, sense for... It's like such a win-win. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's a win-win. I mean... People are happy getting a job, especially the fact, I mean, usually when you're hiring people who like cooking, for them, it's a job they like to do, right? <laughs> it's not, uh, and that's why we, we really, we focus on that aspect of creating quality jobs. It's mm -hmm. jobs, I mean, I myself, I'm really driven by, by passion. Whatever I'm doing as, as a job, it has to be something I like. Otherwise, you know, like I probably get depressed. So we really try to focus on that and always recruit people who want to be in a kitchen, who want to be cooking, because that reflects first on the product. Uh, it reflects on people if they're doing something they like to be doing that I mean that that's great for everyone it's good for the company it's good for them too yeah it's almost like a triple win though too so it's like it's providing jobs that people really enjoy it's providing New Yorkers with really delicious food and then it's also giving people the opportunity to support refugees exactly yeah it's win 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 win, -win. we have like a <laughs> slam dunk sound effect or something <laughs> 
Um, so tell us about how you made the transition. Like you had the concept, and then and then how did it actually come to be? Yeah, that that took a long time, let's say. <laughs> But to summarize it, uh, one of the first steps we did was uh, reach out to the IRC, the International Rescue Committee. Uh, and that, again, took a long time in terms of establishing that, that partnership. And um, so the, to give you a bit of context, the IRC are one of nine resettlement agencies here in the U.S. So they basically help refugees resettle from their own, from their home countries uh, to New York or wherever they, they decide to resettle in the U.S. Uh, and part of that process entails helping them find jobs or find employment. So we reached out to them initially for validation We wanted to see with them whether they thought this was a good idea or not, and clearly they did. Mm -hmm. uh, and and uh, to this date, they still help us recruit. Actually, they're one of uh, the agencies that are helping us recruit people today, mainly mainly chefs. So basically, you let them know you were looking for employees, and then they suggested. They exactly. said we have these individuals, and did all those people were they all chefs before? None of in them. their countries. Okay, none, none of, of them. them. I mean, uh, today maybe out of 18 chefs, maybe. Two or three had previous experience working in restaurants, either as chefs or uh, in, as any. I mean, in restaurants. Otherwise, everyone else, no, they really don't have any previous training or, or experience in restaurants. But they are all talented home cooks. Let's yeah. Say. So how does that work? I mean, they have they had recipes that they just you know knew from memory or that they'd grown up with eating. What was the transition process to turn it? To, yeah. Yeah, to make it like sustainable, I guess, for of a delivery concept. Yeah, so maybe here I should mention that our third partner, Chef Juan, is he's our head chef. He's the chief culinary officer at the company, actually. And he's the person who, first of all, recruits the chef. So he's the one who decides whether one person, you know, has the talent or not. And so far... Is it like an audition? Is it like going on Kind chops? of. Yeah, yeah. It feels like uh, <laughs> chefs... Uh, what do you call that show? Like Iron Chef or something? Yeah, exactly. That, that's kind of how, how it goes. We have everyone come to As the kitchen. a gauntlet. We have all the ingredients and they kind of start making something. And um, Juan, who has experience working for Mission Star restaurants, you know, he has a long experience working in restaurants, including Per Se or El Bulli, some of these top-notch restaurants all over the world. So he's the one who tastes whatever the candidates make, and he can he can feel whether they would make a great... Uh, knowing, clearly, knowing that the skills are something to be acquired mm -hmm. moving moving forward. I mean, uh, uh, clearly, once you have that talent, it's easier to get the skills. Yeah, he's looking for potential. Exactly, he's looking for potential. And he's the one then making training them on how to move in a professional kitchen. It's different from, from a near home kitchen. Um, how to scale their recipes from a small cooking for 10, 15 people to 200 or 300 Um, and uh, hygiene standards, New York standards, all these things. So making sure we go according to uh, top, you know, uh, hygiene standards, all, all these uh, these things. And then even clearly um, choosing those recipes that are good for deliveries, uh, picking, making sure we're, we're um, the menus are coordinated, uh, balanced, all, all these things. So how does that work? Because I imagine there's people speaking, some people don't speak English, some, I mean, there's people speaking all different languages, all working in the same kitchen. Yeah, we have 11 different countries represented today, I think, at the kitchen. Uh, and most of them speak at least basic English, so that, that's good, because they, they live here, so they, they mm -hmm. live in New York. Uh, those who have been resettled in, like, less than two or three months ago usually have a very very basic English but that has never been a challenge for us at the kitchen although initially we thought that was going to be challenging but somehow people just communicate especially for the chefs the only position where we actually do need some level of English fluency is with delivery people who go out and make deliveries 
simply because they need to communicate with the security people, with uh, you know the taxi dri- or uh, the drivers, or uh, you know uh, get directions, something like that. That's the only position where we actually require some level of English fluency. Otherwise, at the kitchen, that's never been a challenge. People just communicate. We like to say the language of food. Exactly. Yeah. We like to say that, and somehow I don't know how it happens. I've actually seen it happening in front of me. I think because they get used to each other, they start speaking in different languages, and everyone understands. Or sometimes because yeah. I'm from Lebanon, I speak in Arabic sometimes to um, chefs who uh, the, uh, the chef who comes from Iraq, for instance. We speak in Arabic, and sometimes I'm speaking to her in Arabic, and I see the chef from Nepal, for instance, nodding and saying, "Yeah, yeah." I, so she <laughs> understands. I don't know how they do it, but they uh, they it kind of happens. Language is not is not an issue. Well, okay. So, so what are issues? What have been the biggest challenges to to come out of the operations? Um, so clearly, I mentioned delivery. Yeah, delivery logistics has been one of the most challenging things, especially in the beginning, finding the right. Uh, especially in a city like New York, where you have to. I mean, traffic is always unpredictable. Uh, you know, ensuring that you're there on time every time, making sure uh, you're doing it at a cost-effective uh, in a cost-effective manner. So definitely, delivery lo- delivery logistics have been challenging. And again, like I mentioned, it's uh, a little harder to recruit people who, to do deliveries than, than chefs at the kitchen. And that, again, was one of the surprises, let's say, because you would think that's the easier part mm-hmm. of the job. Yeah. And somehow it's not because um, it, it's not easy in, in New York to find your way. Uh, you need to know how to use your phone. You need to know how to navigate. Security people are not always the nicest when you want to go inside the you know, fancy It apartment. can be challenging fancy. for people who have lived there their whole exactly, lives. Absolutely. Yeah. It's challenging for myself. So it's, it's not, I mean, not that I'm, uh, but yeah, it, definitely it's, yeah. It's, it's challenging. Yeah, and I know there's there's been some cross-pollination with some of the recipes, different confluences of, of countries. Does that happen organically? Like, what's been the process? More or less. Uh, some things happened organically. Uh, for instance, you have uh, our Nepali chef, for instance, is vegetarian. She always makes momos or dumplings that are vegetarian. Uh, our Iraqi chef loves to cook with beef. Everything she makes has beef or, or something <laughs> meaty. She, she likes meat. So she used to make a lot of momos with uh, with Rashana. Now she knows how to make. I mean, with our Nepali chef. And uh, at some point, she uh, we we figured. She told us. I think back at the kitchen, she told us, "Oh, you know, last weekend I made them for my kids. I made a beef version for my kids." So she made momos that are Nepali. She filled them with an Iraqi filling uh, inside, which had beef. And the result, we had her. We said, "Oh, great! We want to try that." We tried it, and it was actually very delicious. It's you could feel the taste inside. You could feel the spices from the Middle East, and on the outside, you could feel again the the Asian um, flavors, let's say, yeah. or, or at least texture. Uh, so it made a very really nice combination. So that's one of the organic things that happened, and there's a bunch of other examples like that. I love that there's people that are immigrating to America, but they're learning who have come to America, but they're learning about other countries. Absolutely, because they're cooking in the kitchen with people from like you said, eleven different countries. Yeah, and most of them actually now cook some of these recipes for their yeah. families. So even their families have learned cuisines from from all over, and I think they enjoy it. Um. So I have to ask, uh, because it's a, a kitchen that's staffed by refugees and just because of the political climate that we're in now, I'm, I imagine that's been an issue. Um, the first immigration ban was announced on January 31st. How has that, if it has affected at all, how has it changed things or not changed things? Yeah. 
I wouldn't say it did not affect us. It did affect us. If anything, it affected us positively, actually. Mm, <laughs> and nice I can hear. tell you exactly. And especially in a city like New York, I think uh, people really want to do something about it. And we felt that. So I, I can walk you through the process of how what happened to us. I, I, Please exactly. do. Yeah. Uh, right after the ban, actually, or at least the day it happened, uh, I can tell you about my personal experience. I kind of felt, you know, vulnerable with what with everything that had was happening. I think it was a Sunday, so I wasn't at the kitchen. We were not at the kitchen. I didn't know what the chefs were going through, but I knew for sure that it could have been one of us, could have been one of the chefs, could have been anyone stuck on those airports or um, who can't come back to the U.S., let's say. Uh, and as, as an immigrant, I, I just felt vulnerable. Even as a business, too, we felt like, oh, oh, what are we going to do? But then it took, I mean, very quickly we realized that people started flooding to the airports uh, to protest. So it felt like people, especially in New York, they had our backs, right? We didn't feel like we were alone. And very quickly that feeling kind of turned into more determination, I, w- I would say. We, we just felt, okay, that only means that we need to keep doing what we're doing. If anything, we need to do it even better and even faster, right? So the only uh, way it did affect us is that it made us more t- determined to keep doing what we were doing. Uh, the other thing is actually that our sales right after the ban, they doubled. <laughs> mm. uh, so orders doubled. People wanted to do something. They were hearing about us and they felt, oh, great. That, that's one of the ways I could kind of show that I stand with, uh, with immigrants. I stand with refugees. Um, I think that was really clear in our numbers. You can see that people wanted to take a stand. Has that sustained? Yeah, it has. It's so nice. So far it has. I mean, I mean I, we cannot correlate it exactly why or anything. Most of our sales anyway come through word of mouth. So uh, clearly when it first started, it has uh, it ended up affecting our sales today, clearly. But um, in in that month, definitely, it was very clearly related to, uh, to the ban. How did it feel to you as a business owner? I mean, you are an immigrant, but you are also, you know, someone who is largely responsible for the welfare of, you know, over 10 refugee women. Did you feel any sort of personal responsibility to, I don't know, comfort your employees or try and assure them in your, or give them any reassurance in any way? Not necessarily. I mean, first of all, because I there was nothing I could do. Yeah. It was such a legal... I thought if anyone could do anything, it was lawyers or attorneys. Mm-hmm. I really had nothing to do. And if anything, I felt... I, I mean, we were all in the same bucket. I, yeah. I could have been thrown out <laughs> too. For sure. So uh, n- not necessarily. Uh, I didn't feel like there was anything I could do, and that's part of why I felt so vulnerable, actually. Because yeah. there was nothing I could do for for our, for our business. There was nothing I could I could have done for myself, or even for the chefs. So, uh, and that's part of why it felt really depressing. It must be really nothing. complicated to feel, you know, so proud to be in New York right now and feel so much support around you. I mean, it feels com- it feels complicated to me as a New Yorker, and I don't I'm not even in the same position just to feel so much allegiance with my city, you know, on that on that city level, but feel so. Um, disillusioned and sort of betrayed on a national level. Yeah, but at the same time, I feel like a lot of people are speaking out in mm-hmm. New York or even outside of New York. Uh, we were, you're familiar, maybe we'll talk about that later, we were on Kickstarter two months ago, and people from all over the U.S. contributed uh, and they sent us messages. Uh, so it's it's not only in New, in New York. Clearly, in sure. New York, there's a bigger... Well, you, so uh, you really feel that kind of we, divide? We do feel that everywhere. I mean, we do feel that a lot of people are supporting us, and that's kind of what keeps us going. Yeah. How are all of your, if, if you want to speak to this, any of your employees kind of managing, or has anything affected anyone personally in your kitchen? I don't think so. Um, nothing that we've heard. 
uh, I think so far, yeah. And again, this is New York. It yeah. may be different from from other places. I'm again, I'm I'm, I'm not sure. Uh, but we haven't heard of anything. There's, I mean, so far, I think people are peaceful. Yeah. Has anyone reached out to you just like in the New York community? And I mean, obviously, you're you're seeing the support through numbers, but like, have there been any sort of personal experience where you've delivered food and people have expressed that this is a way for them to feel like you know they're making an impact or, or doing something helpful? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, either during the delivery or while people are placing the order, uh, a lot of people do mention that that they feel like uh, they're doing something. But also, a lot of people come simply for the food because mm-hmm. they want to enjoy the food. Well, again, and it's for that us, that's win-win. more important. Yeah. Exactly, for us, that's the most important thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think we we haven't addressed that. We didn't talk about that in the in the beginning. But we really try. I mean, clearly, we are hiring people who are uh, refugees by status. We try to focus a lot on the fact that they are chefs by nature. Uh, that the refugee thing is just a status for them. It's mm-hmm. just, you know, maybe I came here as a student visa, but no one calls me student visa holder, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, we really want people to start seeing our chefs for who they are beyond their status, uh, beyond that visa situation, or beyond, the, you know, why they came to the U.S., uh, and that's really the whole point for us, kind of start to see. And it, it's challenging, I know, because at the same time we have to kind of... Uh, uh, you know, say what we're what we're doing, uh, but for us, the ultimate goal is to really help people start seeing beyond beyond the status. Start seeing yeah. our well, chefs. Well, can you speak to that? I mean, how is that sort of happening in real time? I mean, I imagine like having this profession and being part of such a wonderful company is a really empowering experience. Yeah, hopefully, I, I, I hope it is, and <laughs> I think I think it is actually for 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 the chefs, for for all of us, uh, everyone at, at the company. But definitely, being having the chance to cook your food, have people taste your food, and then tell you, "Wow, it's amazing!" It just it makes you feel so proud. And we've seen that with our chefs. It just people are not, uh, you know, we've had one of the chefs actually say, uh, once said, uh, uh, "It's this with eat off beat." Like this was the first time I didn't have to adapt. Because your whole life as an immigrant, sometimes you're adapting to, to something else. Uh, at Eat of Beat, it's the other way around. It's New Yorkers oh, who are really adapting yeah. uh, to, to their cooking, and it's not the other way around. And I think that's one of the most powerful things, let's say. It's, uh, and the, the other major shift that we try to focus on is the fact that for us, we're not a charity. Uh, that's another thing we haven't mentioned. We're a for-profit. Uh, our employees are regular employees, mm-hmm. just like everyone else. They pay their taxes. They... Uh, you know, they feel they're just like any other employee. Uh, so for us, that's very important because people need also to see that they don't necessarily need any charity. It's, it's not a charity. They don't need your, your help. Uh, for us, it's really the other way around. It's them helping New Yorkers discover something new. It's uh, Eat Off Beat helping New Yorkers discover all these amazing cuisines that they haven't had the chance to try anywhere else. So it's really about just shifting perspectives. Yeah. I want to share something with you, if that's okay, because, you know, a couple, you know, full disclosure, a couple months ago, I wrote an article about your company for Food 52. And so I had the chance to be in the kitchen and I met several of the chefs and one of them, I'm I'm not sure which, what her name was, because she had just started. I think Mm -hmm. like she was very, very new at the time. But she was telling me that before she came to the United States, she knew that she couldn't bring a lot with her, but in a suitcase, she was going to pack food. She was going to bring, um, I think, dried pasta of yeah. some sort. And she told me that no matter what, she wouldn't have a lot to bring with her, but she knew that she'd be meeting new people and she would at least have 
her food. food yeah. And she might not speak the language, but she could introduce herself through cooking. And that just touched me so much because it really made me realize that, you know, food was a way it was going to keep her kind of grounded in mm-hmm. who she was, but it was also a way to to identify yourself and yep. potentially enterprise, which people are doing now through Eat Offbeat, and just um, just use it as a bridge and just just access this new culture. And it's a way, exactly. that it's that language of food yeah. that, that you touched upon before. And I just thought that was so lovely. I, <laughs> I wanted to share that story. <laughs> um, we're going to take a quick break for a commercial, and then we'll be back to talk Mormon all. Perfect. Hi, I'm Dave Arnold, the host of Cooking Issues on the Heritage Radio Network. We all know and love Chinese takeout dishes like General Tso's chicken and egg rolls. But here's the thing. Even though we call it Chinese food, it's not like the food you'd find in China. What's the story behind this cuisine? And how did it become so popular that you can find a Chinese-American restaurant in nearly every town in the country? The answers may surprise you. Visit the Museum of Food and Drink in Brooklyn and see our newest exhibition, Chow, Making the Chinese-American Restaurant. Chow engages visitors with compelling accounts of how Chinese immigrants overcame racism and created Chinese-American cuisine. Discover the science behind the flavors of your favorite takeout dishes, feast on rotating tastings developed by the country's most talented Chinese-American chefs, and try your hand at writing your own fortune, which will be baked into actual cookies by a 1,500-pound fortune cooking machine. What better way to learn, connect, and eat? You can visit Chow at the Museum of Food and Drink on Fridays through Sundays from noon to 6. Tickets and more information can be found at mofad.org. Well, there were three babies born. Hey, you're listening to Food Without Borders on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Sari Kamen, and I'm in studio with my guest, Manal Kahish. She's the founder of Eat Off Beat, which is a food delivery and catering company uh, that employs refugees. So we just learned a little bit about the company, and I know you recently had a Kickstarter for a cookbook. We did, yeah. That, and it that was very was, successful. It was. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, the Kickstarter actually ran in March, between March and April for, for uh, one month. So where are you at in the process? Does this mean there's going to be a cookbook coming soon? Of course. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> there is going to be a cookbook where we've started working on it, clearly. So uh, we fundraised for it. Uh, we crowdfunded for it uh, over March and April. Uh, we had over... Close to 2,000 backers, I think, from all over the world. That's from over 45 countries, wow. actually. Including the U.S. The, the vast majority was in the U.S., but there were also people from countries all over. Um, and yeah, the, the main idea was to actually create a cookbook which will feature our chefs, their recipes and their stories, and kind of really keep with, with our mission of highlighting all the value that, uh, that our chefs are bringing. And really, uh, like I was mentioning, uh, helping people see our chefs beyond their status of refugees and really for, for who they are, who they want, the story they want to tell. Um, we always say, uh, you know, for, for us, one of the ultimate goals is to kind of change the narrative around refugees and show a different story. Uh, so that's why it was only natural for us to produce a cookbook. What better way right, to, to rewrite the narrative than to actually write a new one. So what kind of stories were they sharing, if not ones of their you know, personal kind of tale yeah. of being a, a refugee and immigrating? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so 
You know, there's a lot that defines a person that goes to every single mm -hmm. person. And uh, there's a lot that defines you. It doesn't necessarily have to be why you came here or the way you came here, but also can be, you know, the type of gardens you had in front of your house, the kind of smells you had in front of your house, what you used to cook, what was your inspiration, where, where you learned cooking, um, the, your favorite dish, uh, what your ambitions are, where you're planning to go. Uh, there's so many other things that Every, yeah, and so really just kind of whatever they person. wanted to share about themselves. Exactly, exactly. Are you one of the, the cooks in the in the cookbook? No. Are we going to hear your story as <laughs> I don't well? think so. We haven't decided yet if we're going to have the hummus recipe I think the in hummus, there. <laughs> I would love to get that hummus recipe. Maybe, maybe. <laughs> maybe. I want that recipe. <laughs> <laughs> we can share that. Okay. <laughs> um, I, honestly, I'm not sure yet because clearly I'm, I'm, not, I'm not nearly as good as anyone else <laughs> at the kitchen. So I, I don't think... Uh, so is it 11 different countries that are being represented in the least, cookbook? At, at least. least. We're promising 15. Oh, wow. Actually. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that sounds like it's going to be a really delicious book to have. Absolutely. When, when can we get this book? So we're probably going to have it ready within a year to a year and a half from today. Mm -hmm. we're, we're on it. We're doing our best to have it uh, published as soon as possible. Uh, and in the meantime, clearly for all our backers, those who have backed our campaign, there will be a bunch of different surprises along the way. We don't want to make them wait too long. So yeah. there, there will be a bunch Hopefully of different treats things. arriving in the mailbox. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> I won't tell you too much, okay. but, but there there will be a little like a few things in in the meantime because we know it's a long time to wait. Uh, we're working very hard on it, but there will be a few. It's going to be worth the wait. Definitely, yeah. <laughs> we're confident. And what else? Are you growing the company right now? We are right now. For 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 us, the focus is to grow here in New York. Um, you know. Um, I mean, New York is a huge market in and by mm -hmm. itself, but we'd love to, at, at, uh, at some point, go elsewhere to explore other markets and see uh, other cities where there are a lot of adventurous eaters who also would like to discover all these amazing new cuisines. And we've already received a lot of uh, demand, actually, a lot of emails from people all over saying, oh, when are you coming to my city? So we would love that. We would love for that to happen, but that's going to happen not right now, let's mm -hmm. say. For us right now, it's really about proving our model, making sure... Um, growing a little further here in New York, uh, structuring everything, and uh, yeah, creating new recipes. I'm sure that in the too, meantime. of course, yeah, of course, <laughs> or at least creating systems so those recipes could create themselves yeah. in the future. Um, and I have to say to everyone out there, the food is so good. <laughs> I mean, it's like it's such a wonderful concept, and you want to immediately get on board because of it. But like, the food sells itself. Yeah. Well, thanks for saying that. Yeah, but absolutely. We do have a very high repeat customer rate today, mm -hmm. and. That really shows that people, I mean, usually you might come once because you're intrigued, you want to support, but you wouldn't order again if you were not really enjoying the food. I'm still thinking about that Manchurian cauliflower. Amazing. Like <laughs> That's one of the best sellers. And like spicy and a little sweet and it is so good yeah um so tell us who can order who can order from eat offbeat how does that work so we deliver to groups of 10 people and more all over new york city so wherever you are in new york city we would deliver for it's you like as perfect long as for companies having lunch. exactly companies having lunch nonprofits or universities organizing mm -hmm. events uh, we've done events for up to 800 900 people so any size we would do uh, and even individuals, anyone who's hosting uh, at least 10 people over. <laughs> so uh, a party. So any dinner party. Um, yeah, anyone. But mostly companies. Usually we find that companies enjoy our offering a lot because it's very quickly set up. Uh, cleanup is super easy, too. So we usually deliver. We found a way to uh, to mainstream, if you want. I love the way that the menu is set up online because you really don't have to make choices so if there's that many people it's like there's already different kind of menus that are assembled exactly that just give you kind of like a whole cross section of all the different kinds of food so you exactly. just get to 
you get to try everything. Exactly. And that's where our head chef comes in, in terms of making mm-hmm. sure that those set menus are really contain everything Ooh, you would he's need. Good at that. Yeah. <laughs> and we always make sure to have a dish from, sorry, uh, different dishes from, from all over. So a typical menu right. will so have... so nice not to choose. Exactly. And, but you would still have like a, a salad from Iraq, a side dish from Syria, an entree from Nepal, and then another side dish from Eritrea in one menu. So you would it. get like to taste all of these global party every time. Exactly. And that's one of the things that also sets us apart from other restaurants or ethnic restaurants mm-hmm. because here really in one meal you get to try all of these places from different continents sometimes from four I'm different continents I'm getting so hungry just thinking about it <laughs> um, so where do we go to order the food so you can go on our website eatoffbeat.com uh, and you can directly find the, you know go and order now you can place your order directly online perfect <laughs> Well, Manal, thank you so much. It's been so lovely to have you and just hear about all the wonderful success that Eat Off Eat is experiencing. And it's thank just, you. It's just such a wonderful <laughs> concept. I'm so happy that it exists. And thank that you it's for doing having so us. Well. Of course, you're always welcome here. <laughs> Thanks for tuning in. You've been listening to Food Without Borders on Heritage Radio, and we'll see you next week, same time, Wednesday, 5 p.m. Listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.